Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. We're recording here on a Sunday evening in beautiful New London, Connecticut, in the dining room of Zach and Laura we, at the compound. We've become soft in our post. Uh, yeah. We've, we've become soft. Yeah, we've just decided to, we don't like to be chilly. If but, you do hear the washer whirling at the end of the, uh, <laughs> the, end of the rants, it, it's not in the main topic. We cut it off after that. Right, yeah, that's it. So... Uh, and we are recording a little bit later because Zach and I got hooked on the worst overtime period in the history of sports between the Lions and the and the Steelers. So that was fun. Well, oh, 16 and one. Let's go Lions. <laughs> <laughs> so how you doing, Zach? I'm doing well. Uh, it's a chilly evening. I've, I threw my shoulder out at a bar punching a punching bag. So I've learned that being 32 <laughs> sucks. Yeah, wait, wait, wait till you hurt yourself sleeping. That's 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 a big stage in life when you wake up and you can't move your head because you slept wrong. So, what you be ranting about tonight? I'll be ranting about the culture of Dave Portnoy in context of his recent sexual misconduct allegations that were portrayed in Business Insider. So, you're discussing Portnoy's complaints. So, it's a, it's a uh, that's great. Got a quick question for you, Zach. When Bart. And Milhouse and Munson and Martin drove off to Branson, Missouri <laughs> to go see Andy Williams in concert. Oh, my God. Are you going to ask me what music it was? No, no. Where did they say they were going? Canada for the National Math uh, Contest. National Grammar Rodeo. National Grammar Rodeo. Which Lisa then says, why would America hold their National Grammar Rodeo in Canada? Right. That is correct. Yes, that was a uh, an extremely funny episode. It's one of the best. When they, uh, It also has one of the best lines where they accidentally go to Branson, Missouri, instead of Bronson, Missouri, and all of the uh, people there look like Charles Branson. <laughs> the other Char- way around, Charles they, Bronson. They Bronson. Yeah, right. all the people look like Charles Bronson. It, it's also got my favorite Nelson Muntz line. I didn't think he was going to do Moon River, but then the ninth encore, bam, there it was. <laughs> so that is a great one. How you doing, Andrew? Okay. Um, really, I know, really needed the company in the conversation today. I really appreciate it, guys. I think we got a great episode coming at you. Yeah. Very happy, to, very lucky to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a good episode, and, and you were the the foundation of this, as we talk about oh. later on, because you're a little unhappy about the Jim Mora hire. Yeah, uh, for for <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain is we have a text thread, and when the Jim Mora hiring <laughs> happened, Andrew went on a mini rant in the text. Yeah, and, uh, I think if you I, read it word for word, it's I, a full rant. I basically yeah. called for an hour of the Jim Moore Jr. hire as this week's episode, which <laughs> right. we'll, we'll keep it to like five minutes. But Right, we, yeah. decided, we decided that it would be a symbol of something worse as opposed to just the fact that we get to have Jim Mora Jr. be part of Connecticut's lore. Probably will be the second or third highest paid state employee before long. Uh, well. He will absolutely be the third highest. The highest Behind currently is Danny Gino. and Gino. Gino, yeah. Danny. Gino. And it will absolutely be yes. Jim Mora Jr. Right, and then and followed by the previous five UConn coaches, <laughs> yeah, followed, by, followed by Randy Etzel, yeah. Bob Diaco, Pasqualini. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They'll yeah. all be there. Right? Okay. So, what's your rant about today? <clears throat> so, I'm going to talk about Coach Mike Shashevsky's sort of farewell tour this year, and kind of what I think is um, kind of the lack of humility when people in sports they want to announce the retirement a year in advance. There that. has never been anyone that. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski reminded me of more than Noemi Judd. So, because <laughs> the Judd's had like a nine-year 
farewell tour. It's like Kiss. <laughs> like, what the, they're still fucking touring, man. Like, what, what the right. We can't miss you if you don't leave. So I have a question for you. I uh, My rant is going to be about the Hall of Fame and the hypocrisy that sports writers apply to black athletes versus white commissioners. But one Hall of Fame manager managed the Boston Red Sox in a miracle year, presided over a dynasty uh, in Oakland, and 15 years later managed to get to the World Series with a uh, Padres team. Who is he, and is he dead or alive? He also coached the Expos. Dick Williams? Dick Williams is correct. I think Dick Williams is dead. Dick Williams, dead as a doornail. Yeah. Uh, 2011, so the edible arrangements on State Street just picked up another $18 yeah. as we send Dick Williams' yeah. widow some pineapple on a stick. Yeah, please, chocolate-covered strawberries <laughs> on, the, on the collective tab. What could be better? <laughs> on the, on the collective tab of the Bill Bradley Collective, on the Bill Bradley Collective credit card. It, it, it has the same value as the Batman Amex. <laughs> So it's, a, it's a Venmo card locked to the block. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, basically any donations made to that credit card go immediately to the draft choice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So we will be back after the intro on the Bill Bradley Collective. Passing through the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. So to kick us off this week, I'm going to be talking about a story that broke early this week on Business Insider, and basically it detailed sexual misconduct allegations against Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports, friend of the pod. Uh, I believe I have picked him for worst person in sports and media pretty much every draft we've done. And in this, he's not accused of, of rape. There's no sexual assault allegations. But what he is basically accused of is that he had sex with these young women uh, in his Nantucket summer home. And during the sexual encounter, the woman claims, alleges that she said no and to stop and that don't do this. And that he continued doing this and having sex in a rough fashion with her uh, when she was trying to not consent. There's also a story of another woman who had sex with Dave Portnoy and then seemingly became depressed and had all these issues and had a very similar story of having rough sex against their consent. So nothing like the rape allegations we've seen before, but definitely something that rises to questionable behavior and really moves forward the topic of consent. But what I want to touch on is kind of his response to this. His response to this has been to attack the reporter, uh, Julia Black, who is a woman, and attack Henry Blodgett, who is uh, the head of Business Insider, and go after them in a way where he is signaling to the stoolies, as they call themselves, uh, to basically go and attack these people as well on Twitter, attack them on social media. This is nothing new. Every time Dave Portnoy has been uh, a story about toxic workplace culture, about sexual harassment, about mistreatment of women, basically this is his modus operandi where he basically puts his entire fan base into attack mode against them. And that is kind of what I want to talk about mostly here is this culture of barstool sports that really in the epicenter, you see the most in Boston sports fandom. You see it in the Red Sox fans. You see it in Patriots fans, uh, less so in the Celtics fans, less so in the Bruins fans, but those, but you see it much more in these kind of white dominated fan bases, kind of the epicenter. And, they 
all kind of have this attitude about sports where they're going to be the loud, obnoxious ones. They're going to be the ones making the views, as they say. And they're all following the leader of Dave Portnoy, who this is not his first claim of some sort of misconduct or some sort of impropriety or some sort of harassment when it came to when it comes to women and he has repeatedly attacked them and then continued to keep his job is there anything he can do that you think will get Andrew can speak more to this than you than 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 you dad but is there anything that he can do that you think that would get the the quote unquote stoolies to finally realize that maybe they're following uh, a bad guy to put it mildly I shudder to think just how ghastly of an act it would take because it would really take a pretty, obviously far more ghastly than what he's uh, done to these young women. Portnoy is a 21st century like Jim Jones. It, Barstool, Barstool's following. It's 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 cult like, and it's fucking huge. It, it is it's massive. It is everywhere, it, across the country. He, um, he's got his he's got his pizzas in every Walmart in the United States right now. These people in, in stoolies, as you call them, there's just like un. It's just it's sycophantic and how like unfailingly loyal they are to this cretin. It's almost we talked last week, and I think like with the NFL. The NFL in its in its lane is almost too big to sort of like take down and hold accountable at any level. You know, Barstool in its media lane and Dave Portnoy, the following is so big that I, I I don't know what could possibly upheave it or like turn his his followers, which is what they're follow. I mean, that's they are followers. Followers. It's it's Trumpian. It's, it's very Trumpian. I don't know what it would take. If, to, we, to, if we've learned anything over the last twenty years, is that white male demagogues appealing to low intelligence insecure white males white male anger white male anger can survive forever whether it's trump whether it's portnoy and by the way portnoy frozen pizza and walmart is the most inevitable parlay in the history of the world <laughs> um if it's joe rogan it just doesn't matter because uh, I always like to give Joe Rogan shit because Brandon winces every time I do it. (laughs) And like, but the difference between Portnoy and Rogan is probably $10 million, $20 million, something like that. Rogan's probably a little rich. Joe Rogan, he's a responsible, great father who doesn't rape women. I'm pretty sure he was on the last episode of Portnoy's YouTube pizza show. I believe Rogan was actually the guest. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yeah, they're buddies. and, And by the way, if a woman tells you to stop and you don't, that is sexual assault. Like there, that, that is the idea that, you know, when men get that look in their eye, they're just no different from hyenas is just literally not true. And yet, you know, there are bars all over Connecticut that say, thank you, Barstool, because they lent them some money. Yep. Probably at an incredible interest rate, but they lent (laughs) them some money. I mean, Portnoy is a genius at what he does. Unfortunately, what he does is be a reprehensible white guy. So I'm going to talk about the Hall of Fame inductions for baseball. I know it's kind of not cool to care about the Hall of Fame, but I care about the Hall of Fame. And I was very excited to see that Marvin Miller was inducted this year. He should have been inducted, and this is the year he went in, and that's great news. I was less excited that Derek Jeter was there, but Derek Jeter is a Hall of Famer. There's just no way around it. Ted Simmons and Larry Walker also got in. Larry Walker is, I think, a close case. That one's a little more questionable. 
Ted Simmons, I don't. He's just not a Hall of Famer. He was a bad defensive catcher, and then he was a DH that led the league in grounding into double plays many years. Um, not on the list. Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is not on the list because the um, the harbingers of what is, or the arbiters of what is morally correct, which is old white sports writers have decided that Bonds doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, even though Mike Piazza, who had similar issues, uh, is in. Um, nope. He, um, Jeff Bagwell, who went from hitting six home runs a year to 50, got in. But they've decided Barry Bonds is where they crossed the line because Barry Bonds never gave good interviews, treated him with contempt, and uh, so he gets caught up in the steroid. Okay, I can kind of live with that if it's consistent. Bud Selig's in the Hall of Fame. Bud Selig went into the Hall of Fame with 97% of the vote. Bud Selig perpetrated more than any other person the steroid era. It was never against the rules until he had no choice because baseball was on the ropes and he recognized that the home run fervor was going to get him back. So Sammy Sosa doesn't get to be in the Hall of Fame and Mark McGuire doesn't get to be in the Hall of Fame. But Bud Selig does it is the most preposterous hypocrisy imaginable and by the way if barry bonds got hit by a bus before he went to san francisco he's in the hall of fame barry bonds is one of the five greatest players who ever played the game by before he went to san francisco he had 400 home runs and 400 stolen bases yeah nobody else in history has ever done that he is a clear hall of famer and if you say well you don't get to be in because of steroids and how the fuck do you let bud seal again See, I take this and it's not necessarily an argument for Bonds and McGuire and um, Clemens and, and Clemens and Sosa to get in the Hall of Fame. I think it's an argument to make sure Seelig's not in the Hall of Fame. Because if you're going to have a standard, stick to the standard. If the standard is no steroid era players get in, then the standard has to also be the person who is responsible for the steroid era also doesn't get in. That's what he's most known for. And correct me if I'm wrong... It didn't become illegal until, like, Congress stepped in. It was illegal. It wasn't against the rules. That's what I'm right. saying. Yeah, it, it didn't become a violation of baseball rules until Congress stepped in. Right. And there's also a long history. If you ever read Ball 4, when they talk, he used to talk about the bowls of amphetamines that were on the table so that players could stay awake during the dullest game possible. You know, but I, I just think, I think the Bonds, the Bonds and Clemens, who I do not like, but Bonds and Clemens not being in is insane. But you can't put you can't put Sealy in then. What defines like a a Hall of Fame worthy commissionership like across sports? Like I, I think of like a Pete Rozelle, and I'm like, well, the NFL and AFL, AFL merger is like one of the most important things that's like ever happened in sports. And Rozelle was a big part of that. Let's put him in the Hall of Fame. You know, Sealy. What's the case for Sealy? The case is that you know, baseball in the early '90s is is in is in ruin really in terms of like national appeal. He was good for business because he attached himself to, he endorsed the home run, the home run at all costs. And like, if you were to outline a C-League, you know, what's the case? You can't go the first paragraph without Maguire and Sosa and Bonds, all of whom not in the Hall of Fame. So um, it's, it's a compelling thing. To bring us back to the Steinbrenner episode we did, C-League was also sued for he, 
uh, collusion in keeping player salaries down. Yes, he as, was. As owner of the Brewers, right? As no, owner no. Was, uh, was he as commissioner? Oh, oh commissioner, yes, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. is, there were, Selig, it was the ninth commissioner. Five of them were in the Hall of Fame. Which, yeah. It's uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I think it's hard to, difficult to argue with that. Happy Chandler. I don't know why. His name was Happy. So Ford Frick, who I think it's difficult to disagree with. And Bowie Kuhn, who it's easy to disagree with. It's old white guys celebrating other old white guys. So to round out uh, this week's series of rants, much to mine and Zach's uh, joy, I'd say. Uh, Definitely joy. The 2021-2022 NCAA college basketball season tipped off this, uh, this week. Listen, if, unless you're a diehard, you're probably not going to start paying attention for another like five months. Um, and I would say, listen, this first week, for every UCLA Villanova, for every Texas Gonzaga, there were 150 UConn Coppin States and UConn Central uh, Connecticut States. Games aren't going to get good for a while, um, so you got time. I don't, you're, you're pretty college basketball apathetic, right? Yes, I will watch the tournament. Okay. I, I will actually watch the league tournaments. One thing we can do this year legally in the state of Connecticut that we haven't been able to do in seasons past is we can wager on college basketball. We can't wager on UConn in Connecticut, which is probably good for me because I'd probably go belly up. But um, I have a bet that even Vegas, Vegas isn't even going to touch this, okay? Because it's you can't quantify where to set the over-under for glowing tributes, whether it be on SportsCenter, whether it be during games, pregame, postgame, games where they're plugging... Future games, you are going to be inundated if you watch college basketball with tributes to the soon-to-be-retired Mike Krzyzewski of Duke University, who was on his farewell tour. Uh, he announced this summer that this would be his final season. His heir, uh, associate head coach and former player, the whitest... Well, I mean, you talk about white Duke, Duke players, John Shire. And this, wait till you see this fucking guy uh, on their bench. Anyway, he's the heir apparent. Krzyzewski's out. Um... But again, you couldn't put the over-under high enough on the number of glowing... Again, every coach, they played Kentucky this week, and John Calipari, all he's answering questions about, not about his really good Kentucky team, not about his team season. It's all about, what are your memories of going up against uh, Coach K? Uh, what are your this and that? And that's all, that's all... Every coach that has to face this guy this year is going to be asked the same questions. Every coach that's ever crossed paths with this guy, you're going to see on ESPN, on FS1, talking about his legacy and this and that. Listen... Whatever you want, Shashevsky is a basketball coach, and we've talked long and, and time and again about just the deification of these guys. He's a he's a college basketball coach. He coached a bunch of guys that would have been pros without him, and that would have probably gone on to successful lives without him because they attended Duke University. He's a bit of a bully. I did not like a few years ago how he dressed down an Oregon player for taking a shot after the uh, you know in quote-unquote garbage time, but it was an NCAA tournament game. And it's not your place to dress down the other kid. If Dana Altman at Oregon wants to dress down his player privately, that's his prerogative. It's not Coach K to do it on the court in front of the cameras. What I really want to throw shade at Krzyzewski for here, though, is I think, and then it's, this is purely in sports, not in like in other walks of life. There is something about announcing your retirement a year in advance where... You knowingly are going to be lauded and celebrated for that for the next year. And you know that. And there's a certain lack of grace, I think, in doing that. You mentioned Derek Jeter in a positive light. When Derek Jeter announced his final season was going to be his final season in spring training, 
That la- there was there's a lack of humility there. The story becomes, you know, oh, this is the last time Derek Jeter will play in X ballpark. Last time he'll face X pitcher, whatever. Like that's not the fucking story. Guys like Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowitzki, to me, just you know, portraits in just in just fucking humility and grace and greatness. Quietly, they played their last seasons. They walked away. There was no. There was no tour. Like Kobe had a tour where you know every building he's in that last season, he's this and that. There's a selfishness about announcing your retirement. And listen, you can go. Krzyzewski could have gone to the AD and just said, "Hey, this is it for me," and kept it under wraps. Shire's the next coach, whatever. But it's like you want. It's like they. Even if it's subconsciously, they they want to be celebrated. They want to be deified, and 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 I don't like it. I, I've never liked it. I, I, when athletes, coaches, when, it's, when they're on that, you know, that last dance, that victory, you know, that, you know, the last tour, just do it and walk away at the end, man. Don't, why, why do you have to eat up all of the spotlight that you've been in for the better part of the last half century if you're Krzyzewski? The, the one thing you mentioned about the Oregon player is if you remember, Mike Krzyzewski denied he dressed him down. He said, I didn't do that. And it was like, well, the camera's around. He goes, yeah, I didn't do that. I just the handshake I just, line. Yeah, yeah, I just said like, oh, well, good play. And it's like, and then he has to come out and back, you know, walk it back and say, oh, yeah, I guess I did kind of insult the kid. My, my, the only thing that is a positive here is that when Duke loses in the tournament, we no longer have to see those stupid interviews with Coach K where he's crying and talking about how great his team was and how hard the kids played. He doesn't give a shit about these kids. He doesn't care at all. He cares about himself. He is a world-class asshole. He is Bobby Knight, his mentor, having gone to finishing school. Yeah. I will not miss Mike Krzyzewski for one second. Uh, I would have expected not nothing more from him than to do this and I would have expected nothing less that he has been about making sure that the Duke brand is him and not the players from the day he sat down there and by the way let's remember the guy he took over for also played in the national championship game so next spring Duke will transition from the Shashevsky era to the Shire era and I think that'll be a pretty good litmus test for the power of the Duke brand. I'll be interested to see how they, what their next 10 years are like. But that kind of ties into today's main topic. Uh, today, after the break, we're going to talk about changes in leadership, both uh, in sports and in politics, and what, uh, what to expect from some of these changes that are forthcoming. It's all next on the Bill Bradley Collective. In a world where everyone's on and no one's unplugged. Where being busy is a badge of honor. Where the race from the gym to the office to the carpool and to the kitchen is unrelenting. When your spouse asks, what should we do for dinner? And your boss demands, I need this ASAP every single day. And silence and solitude is only achieved when your phone battery dies. We bring you a new kind of hero. Nothing. Yes, nothing. Just nothing. Nada. No phone, no Netflix, no cooking, no laundry, no Snapchat, no scrolling, no swiping left or right. Nothing is here to save you. Come 
coming to a quiet space near you this February. So our topic today is changes that we are not excited about in politics and sports. And then we may get, if we have time, to a couple that we are happy about. But obviously it's us. We're going to rant before we celebrate. So, And this all started because Andrew had a very strong response to the hiring of 61-year-old Jim Mora Jr. as the coach of the UConn football team. And so what is this response? I spat coffee all over the table that I was sitting at at work um, when I saw the headline. Let's talk a little bit about Jim Mora Jr., son of the great Jim Mora, famous for playoffs. playoffs. Diddly poo. He said diddly poo a bunch. You probably saw him patrolling the sidelines for the Falcons when Mike Vick was there. I think he went to the playoffs once. He made his way into college where he failed quite well at UCLA so well that his buyout conveniently ended uh, this past offseason. So now he was able to kind of seek employment. And who is there to give him employment but the University of Connecticut Athletic Department? The, he's, um, he's been out of UCLA since for six years. years. Yeah. 17 was his last year. It's a massive the, the, the Connecticut media coverage of this has been ridiculous. They keep, former NFL coach yeah. Jim Mora Jr. Like it's big hire. Like they're hiring, you know, oh, Bill course. Belichick. He was 31 it, and 33 as a pro coach. It's another ever since Edsel, and fuck Edsel, I'm not trying to, you know, shine his shoes, but they they go from Edsel, they hire Paul Pasqualoni, um, a retread an old man. They try to go young. They go Bob Diaco. Defense again, though. They go from defense to defense to defense, and Diaco fails spectacularly as well. They go back to Edsel, another dreadful hire, a retread in the purest form, literally. And now they go to Jim Moore Jr., who is, and I think we might, we'll talk about this when we talk about the Virginia gubernatorial race, but why do, why do we go back to retreads? Why do we go back to people with that Really, their history is largely like unproductive and failed. I, I I understand it, but from a X's and O's, dollars and cents, I don't understand it because I don't see how Jim Mora succeeds here at all. Football coaching, more than any other occupation in this country, except possibly politics, is the province of fail sons. That you know, the one that was supposed to be the exception was Ch- Kyle Shanahan, which is fine unless you actually look at his record. You know, I mean, obviously he's a good mind. But, like, you look at Scott Ferentz in Iowa. His son runs the offense. That offense is sub-high school level. They only win when people fumble on the tw- on their own eight-yard line and they can cash it in. Um, even Belichick's kid. Steve. Who, Steve, who, who who's still rocking the mullet. Mora is a fail son who's been around forever. My thing is, why does UConn want to see? 61-year-old head coach. The guy from Holy Cross, and I don't remember his name, the coach from Holy Cross, who beat UConn this year, and is undefeated in the Patriot League, and seems to have a sense of how to build a program. You need to build this program from the studs up. There is nothing here. And the one thing that was clear about Mora at UCLA is he couldn't recruit. His whole success was was using the uh, previous regime's players. Once he got to his own players, he couldn't win anymore. I literally, I, I well, I literally said to you this week off air, Zach, that UConn they have the coffers to kind of go out and pluck a like one double A head coach. A, I think they could land a solid offensive or defensive coordinator, a young guy from a power five. They have, I think they have the money to do that, but they don't. 
They go back I, to the, the well. Uh, I don't. Amora is not going to be cheap. I thought this hire no. was just. I thought this hire was just like peak Connecticut culture. Like, why do we go to retread? It's like because that's that's what Connecticut does. Because we're the a, land of steady. We're habits. the land of steady habits. <laughs> like we don't ever want to change. We're not going to hire some Sean McVay, thirty-two year old. Like absent Brandon, we've all lived in this state our entire lives. Brandon's lived here long enough to be an honorary nutmegger, but like <laughs> almost. Oh, you know, but like. It, it's what we do. We don't want to change. We'd rather hire Randy Etzel for a second time than take a risk. And UConn, the one thing about UConn is they have so much fucking money. They have so much money. They could have hired anybody. And instead, they went for this retread who they think, well, he was good once. So he'll be good again. And it's just working in Connecticut politics. It just reminds me of every political campaign I've ever been a part of. Everything you need to know about Jim Mora was that when he was announcing football games, in 2010, he was teamed with Dick Stockton, uh-huh. which meant he had Jaguar games. He had he had like the very bottom game because Stockton's peak was the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> By the mid 2000s, he's just he's just hanging around doing the worst game. And Mora worked with him, and. That says everything about Mora as a football mind you need to know. That this, he, he, he would have done Jaguars Colts. So moving on to another change in leadership, but this time in politics. Uh, we had a recent pol- recent election for the governor's race in Virginia, where we had, uh, un- talk about retreads, another Clinton retread of former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Because it was the most infuriating choice. Because in Virginia, for some reason, governors can't run for a second term after their first term. They have to let somebody else be governor, and then they're allowed to run again. I guess that's term limits. It's something. It's insanity. It's it's the NEA model. But NEA they, has that model. But the de- the Democrats ran uh, Terry McAuliffe, who is a Clinton Easta. Um, he was one of Clinton's bag men, and uh, former governor of Virginia. He was a huge Hillary supporter in 2016, and he ran again. And surprisingly, uh, not a lot of people were excited about him. Uh, There was very little enthusiasm for him, and the Republicans ran, first name Phil? Glenn. Glenn Youngkin, uh, who basically ran his entire campaign on critical race theory. That was basically the impetus of his entire campaign, was like critical race theory and anti-mask mandates. And he won in a, when the votes were finally tallied, a not particularly close race. It was about... It was less than by what Murphy won by, which no, the media will never tell you. But yeah. it's, that that race was called by ten thirty at night. Yeah, everyone knew. Everyone knew right. Youngkin won the day the day of right. the election, and Youngkin is going to take over Virginia, which is a state that is trending blue, uh, because mostly because of the Northern Virginia DC suburbs, which you have a lot of uh, PMCs. For those who don't know that, it's professional middle class people. People similar to myself, where we have a career job in politics and we live in the suburbs instead of the city. Uh, I obviously went a different direction and decided to live downtown New London. <laughs> I've only had my car broken into a couple times, but I still think it's a good choice. And this is going to bring in, because one of the things we're dealing with now is redistricting. This could have massive implications. Yeah, the, the redistricting... The Republican redistrict redistricting, which will end up in courts over and over and over again, because it's it, it it is, it is going well beyond shamelessness. McAuliffe, I thought, was a horrifying candidate, and I did not contribute to that race. And I have I contribute I contributed to Northam's race. Uh, he wasn't ideal, 
but the blackface really didn't help. Yeah, but that was after he won. That's true. That was, that was true. true. You're right. He he's a businessman. He's worth about four hundred and forty million dollars. It has come out since the election in the way that the Washington Post likes to break stories two days later after the election's over that he has donated 40% of his salary to charity, but the charity is the Faux Foundation, PHO, and the only people who draw a salary from the Faux Foundation are himself and his wife. So he may be facing massive tax fraud charges. Forbes magazine, which is not exactly liberal, indicated today in an article I read but barely understood that they think he will be facing significant charges. What he did do is he is the first person who used Trump but kept them in an arm's length. That Trump keeps talking about the fact that, you know, it was his endorsement, but he never allowed Trump to campaign for him, would not go to any events that he was in. Trump didn't end up going to Virginia because Youngkin said he wouldn't go because he had an issue that drew white women. He pounded him. He pounded McAuliffe among white women which Trump had pretty much given away in the past because of this critical race theory bullshit, which is not even an issue. Which Um, I would like Glenn Youngkin to explain to me what critical race theory is. Well, if you you watch any of the debates, Youngkin didn't answer a question. Can can any, we are all fairly informed, fairly educated men. Can any of us explain what the fuck critical race theory is? What it boils down to is white mothers don't want their children to feel bad about the fact that they have been the beneficiaries of systematic racism for 300 years, it may, it may hurt their feelings. And that's what this is about, to make sure that their the- their feelings aren't hurt. You talked about, I mean, they talked about banning books, not just... By the way, not just banning books, burning right, them. Not, right, not just uh, The Bluest Eyes, or which is a brilliant book. Not the handmaid, just The Handmaid's Tale, another brilliant book, but... The role of the KKK in modern Virginia is on that list because it turns out the KKK was involved in a lot of bad things in modern Virginia to the surprise of literally no one except Dorothy and Karen who live on, you know, Hummingbird Lane and don't want their children to be upset. And and Youngkin tapped into that and McAuliffe had no answers. Sorry. Because there, no, there are no answers. There are no answers. Yeah. I, I don't like critical race theory. What the fuck is critical race theory? Right. Well, I don't want the accurate description of American history to be taught. Okay? It, we are never... I, as long as critical race theory is an issue, the Democrats are never going to win it, another it, election. It is, it is no less a boogeyman than the caravans coming up from Mexico. The modern Republican Party is, you need to be afraid if you're white. Yeah. Because they're coming for you. I think McAuliffe had a line like on the record that essentially was that... Parents are not going to dictate curriculum, and that's where Youngkin. Awful line. And that's where Youngkin just came. It, it, it he's right. He's an awful. He's right. But we are living was, in a time where parents are deciding major health issues and major educational issues based on the fact that somehow they had fertile wombs and sperm, and they know nothing about this. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the right to do it. I remember getting in an argument with my dear departed mother in the late 70s about this when I was like 16. And it's like, no, the fact that I'm your child doesn't give you special knowledge. And they, we should let experts make this decision. 
So I'm going to kick over to sports, although the Youngkin win is not good. Um, it's a, it's they a, held the house. Democrats held the House of Delegates, I think. Very, very, very slim. narrowly. Yeah. Very slim. As someone said, the uh, the Potomac region of Virginia and the Old Dominion region of Virginia are separated by a river and 90 years. And I thought that was a perfect answer. So I'm going to talk about someone else I'm not excited to see back, and that's Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was hired to coach the Mavericks. Jason Kidd's a Hall of Fame player, in my opinion. Uh, no, no question. Hall well, well deserved Hall of Fame no player. Question. Yeah, mildly overrated in my opinion. One of uh, the, at some point you have to hit a jump shot. But he was one. Of, he was that was late career. He was late, one of his late, late career. Right, right. What, what, That's how he stuck around as long as he did. Right. Though, he became was, a three. He he managed to renovate his game. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Jason Kidd has been a coach for a number of years. He coached the Nets and then he coached the Bucks. He coached the Bucks. If you take the time away from just the. He gets some credit because when Vogel was out sick, he coached for the, those Lakers teams. Mm. But he's not really the coach there. If you take that away, he's 191 and 193 as a coach. He was 139 and 151 with the Bucks, who had Giannis mm-hmm. on that team. And the second he left, they exploded. And Buttonholzer went 162 and 65 with the same team. Like, just... The same team, basically, except for Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday is not a 100-win player. But what upset me more than anything is the team that he went to. The Mavericks in 2018, and we talked about this a little bit last week, had to pay a huge fine in a policy and management overhaul because of their treatment of women in the organization, which was called by the, the, you know, in the report a corporate culture rife with misogyny and predatory sexual behavior that happened three years ago. Uh, Mark Cuban claimed to know nothing about these issues, uh, did not even go to the report, uh, the issuance of the report, because he had to he had to tape Shark Tank. Yet he admitted he knew his chief salesperson, uh, Chris Hyden, uh, Chris Hyde, kept porn on his computer and had a used condom fall out of his pocket during a meeting. I'm Ew. sorry. I'm sorry. What? Ew. <laughs> The flush that <laughs> shit, man. He has a used <laughs> condom which he kept in his coat, and it fell out during a meeting. That is biz- that's yeah, that's upsetting. Bad hygiene. Yeah, I, I, I it just struck <laughs> this, me as this, this is how COVID spreads. And it, he admitted that his CEO uh, Teramuda Usi, he had been harassing women for years. She would say he knew nothing about it. But there was a huge article in the Dallas Morning News while he was in the process of, of buying the team about this. Jason Kidd has a arrest record for physical abuse of his wife. Assault and battery. He also has a, he has a DUI later on. I'm not going to pass judgment on that, even though he totaled his SUV. I probably should pass total uh, judgment on it. But here he is, this guy who is, A, a very bad coach. If you remember, and Andrew, you probably do, the defensive system that the Bucks ran, it was kind of like Nolan Richardson's 40 minutes of hell. And it was 40 minutes of hell. Unfortunately, it was eight minutes of exhaustion, and the teams got beat in the fourth quarter nonstop. And there's no good reason why he's there, he, no good basketball reason. There's a moral reason why he shouldn't be there. And there he is. I don't know what he's supposed to do with Luka Doncic, uh, teach him how to shoot worse. I don't know. Two big takeaways for me. One, when kid, I think kid's big moment in his in his career is when he gets to the, he comes at the Nets as a player and he gets the Nets to the finals in two thousand two, and 
his his young son at the time is just like this little he's like a fucking he's a mini me he's a spitting image and he's courtside yeah. with with his mother kid's wife and he's kind of, he's being sort of like you know he's all over the back page he's like this cute kid courtside of the games whatever like Andrew Giuliani back when uh, Giuliani Except, right so Giuliani was a teenager and this kid's like in kindergarten and right around the same time that the mother and this this adorable child are you know at all these Nets games big you know finals games kid kid beats her up like he gets and that kind of at the time too it kind of got brushed off it, it, it was not as big of a story as i think it would be 20 years later it was not it was it was almost like they were doing sort of like a like by having the kid there it was like service for his for his you know this this kind of really bad domestic abuse this this is a story i i learned about just from watching Steelers, Lions, tie. <laughs> my dad told me what he wanted to talk about. But this really goes to show, like, Mark Cuban is considered, correct me if I'm wrong, but considered one of the more progressive owners. Yes. Yeah. And this shows that, like, these guys are exactly who we think they are. Yeah, and there is no, there is no progressive owner. And, and as we talked about last week with the Suns issue, will the NBA treat misogyny rampant misogyny the way they treat racism and this hiring the chauncey billups hiring in portland similar issues going back away a ways but similar issues and i would say billups overall is less problematic than kid has been yeah kid has alienated pretty much everyone he's ever dealt with i think at the crux of it is too both organizations, Dallas and Portland, they they get rid of tenured, respected coaches and Rick Carlisle and Terry Stotts, and they both make these these. I think both hires are very controversial. Do you really do you really want to entrust? You have Luka Doncic, who might be the most valuable. I hate to refer to an athlete as an asset, but like the most at his age and how good he is. Do you really want to give the you know the keys to his future to Jason Kidd? And likewise with with. You know the, the Blazers are in need of like a new a new you know revitalization is is Chauncey Billups and again with with perhaps a checkered past uh, you know in terms of domestic assault or uh, sexual assault right? sexual in, assault in the for case him. of Bill, yeah. uh, Billups we're leaving sort of again established guys with like no real records of sort of um, there's no I mean not higher, that there could be a compelling enough reason to hire someone with these issues hanging over their heads. But clearly, there is not a compelling reason for them to hire them, and they still did. And I don't think it speaks well of the NBA. Another change in leadership, which was a, a different political election, happened in the city of Buffalo, uh, where in June there was a Democratic primary where Indira Walton won, and she was running as an open socialist. She was standing up for workers that were organizing. She was standing up for tenants against landlords. She was running as a straight-up socialist candidate in a major city in America, and she won the Democratic primary. And in Buffalo, like many cities, the Democratic primary essentially is the election. Whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to go on because the Republican Party functionally doesn't exist. That, that is the reality in many cities across America. So what happened was Byron Brown, who is the current mayor who lost the primary, launched a write-in campaign against Indira Walton. And this is the part that really fires me up, is that he teamed up with the Republican Party of New York and the Republican Party of Buffalo, 
which spent money on independent expenditures to fund his campaign to take down Indira Walton because the biggest threat to America right now is a black socialist woman in the city of Buffalo. Hmm. So we have to spend millions of fucking dollars making sure that she never fucking wins, even though the only thing she's trying to do is fight for workers and fight for tenants and to take care of your fucking trash. And they spent money. And this motherfucker teamed up with the Republicans. If you are a Democrat in the United States right now, you should be a fucking shamed of yourself. You should be ashamed that this happened in the city of Buffalo. You should be ashamed that this happened in the state of New York. You should be ashamed that this happened in your political party, that they would team up with the party of Trump, the party of Trump, to beat a socialist whose only goal was to make life better for working families in Buffalo, which is a city I've been to and I fell in love with the minute I got there. It is a working class city. It is gorgeous. It is amazing. It has incredible history. It has incredible architecture. It is a beautiful city. And this motherfucker teams up with Trump, the party of Trump. If you're a Democrat in America, how do you look yourself in the mirror right now and think your party is any different, any different than the Republican Party? Well, actually, our- Because they teamed up. They literally worked together. Brown, Brown did. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the Democratic... The New York Republican Party and the New York Democratic Party worked together right. to stop Indira Walton. It is not much different from what we saw 20 years ago with Lieberman and Lamont here in Connecticut. If you're ever tempted to behave like Joe Lieberman ever, ever in your life, you should just walk into traffic. Like, just be done with it. And, um, yeah, that was a horrifying result and it is not the first time we have seen this because ultimately the parties, the hierarchy in the parties, especially in cities, have a vested interest in remaining in power there. There, there is one political party in the United States, and it's the corporate political donor class. Yeah, I mean, because uh, let, let I, me, again, I would argue with you that the voting rights issues are, are completely handled differently by the parties. Yes, they are, but look at the actual domestic, the domestic economic issues and how they're handled, and they are exactly the same. You don't have to look farther than Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, Chris Coons, Mark Warner, any of those people who were willing to cut down the Build Back Better agenda and work with the Republicans the same way Byron Brown was willing to work with the Republicans in order to get their result they wanted. These parties have become the same. They are owned by the same people. They are owned. Well, they donate to the same people. Trump donated to Democrats his whole life. And if you are a progressive, you say, well, okay, they elected moderate Terry McAuliffe, and he got beat. We elected, we nominated liberal. Phil Murphy. Well, liberal Walton. Yeah, but Murphy too, yeah. right? And, but, you know, we, we nominated liberal Walton, and then they just take her away too. Like, it's just, it's, it, it's very discouraging. I will say, I'm going to kick it to something I'm happy about, and that's Michelle Wu, who won in Boston. She is somehow the first non-white male to ever be the mayor of Boston. That's not surprising at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I found myself both shocked but not surprised. Um, she's a protege of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Warren was her, her teacher in, in, at Harvard, and, and she's, um, she did work briefly with the Boston consulting firm, which is not great. Not great. But she quit there to help her mother out. 
the thing I would like to point out, she's running, she ran on a very progressive platform. And in that platform was a policy that, that 911 calls that were not for crimes would not be sent to the police, but be sent to a civilian agency that featured social workers who could go and respond to the calls to try to de-escalate things such as domestic issues, mental health issues, not defund the police. This is not a defund the police. This is a, we're going to have a separate avenue for people who are not dealing with crimes because we're asking police to deal with something that, that they're just not trained to do. That was on the ballot in Minnesota. It lost handily. It lost 42-58, and I read 38,000 stories about it, and I didn't read one story about the fact that Michelle Wu won 68-32 uh, with the exact same fucking policy. So she will, I think, be the most liberal mayor in the United States, and I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a positive. I mean, Boston is by any account, the Alabama of New England. You know, they are the backwoods KKK version of the South in New England. I mean, anyone who's ever been to a Boston sports game has heard the racial slurs. They've heard the outright just misogyny and sex, like sexually incorrect things to say and just awful comments. And the fact that they elected a Taiwanese immigrant, I, I think that says something. They got it right. And as Zach always says, credit, you know, points given when points points given where points earned. Thank you. And and so we rarely leave on a positive note. And so after 50 changes, we found one that didn't make us angry. And so good luck, Michelle Wu. I'm not going to congratulate Glenn Youngkin, but uh, good luck staying out of prison for what seems to be pretty obvious tax fraud. By the way, good luck to Byron Brown for staying out of prison, who has multiple FBI investigations in the city of Buffalo for donations given to Andrew Cuomo, friend of the pod. (laughs) To be fair to Democrats, there is no more corrupt Democratic Party anywhere than in New York if you don't count Illinois as a state. But with that, uh, we will see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please smash that subscribe button and follow us on Facebook at the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll see you all again next week.